The scripture reading for today is from Acts chapter 4, verse 32. That can be found on page 1081 of your Pew Bibles. So that's Acts chapter 4, verse 32. The believers share their possessions. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles named Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Ananias and Sapphira. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you receive for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young man came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Then Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in, and finding her dead, had carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is the word of the Lord. I've experienced me meaningful community a handful of times in my life. I don't know if that's the case for you as well. And in these opportunities and in the privilege of doing that, uh, these communities that I've been a part of, they're marked by a genuine love for each other, a level of accountability that didn't feel like shaming, a loving one another to be who God is calling us to be. And it's because of those deep experiences, it sets a bar for how I would like to continue to experience community. But when we think about the ideal and a beautiful picture of a group called together by Christ, moved to tell others the good news of God's means of rescue and relationship, no matter of socioeconomic background or anything else, but just a desire to live into the mission of God, we can look no further than the birth of the church in Acts. 
Not only is their mission and purpose driving them together, but there is also a deep love and concern for one another. People acting on convictions to sell properties and to lay the whole amount at the feet of the apostles. A trust of the apostles' authority to do right with this generous offering. No one was in need. Not one person. No one felt need. That's amazing. No one holding on with white-knuckled grip onto their possessions. To hear about this community must have been so intriguing and inviting. Just to live within Jerusalem at that time and to hear about this movement that's happening, gaining numbers, 3,000 added in one day. And you got to think, what's going on there? What's happening? And here I'm, I'm hearing about these acts of compassion and love. My friend's knees got taken care of last week. Like to hear about all those things must have been so inviting, even to those who were not yet convicted to follow Christ. And here in this chapter, just setting up the chapter that we're going to be talking about today, we see this, selling their property, laying it at the feet of the apostles, trusting their authority to do with it as, as was needed. And then Luke, he focuses in on one particular believer, Joseph, and they give him this nickname, Barnabas, because he's just been so great and they name him son of encouragement. And he owns a tract of land, and he sells it. He brings the whole amount, lays it at the apostles' feet, and he trusts them to do with it as needed. Here is a picture of community that is so inviting, that's so amazing. You know, the place of community life in the early church was like this. It was, community life was a means of both mission and mutual care. Their mission was to be used of God to add to their numbers daily the followers of Christ, but this didn't exclude caring for one another. Their focus wasn't so solely driven that they forgot about each other. And this Barnabas, he does this, focusing in on him. This amazing community is there, community life, mission, and mutual care. And this brings us to this narrative wherein in certain translations, it says, now there was a man named Ananias and with his wife Sapphira. And in the translation, in another translation, it starts off with this contrasting word, but. And so we have this amazing example of Barnabas. He's convicted personally. He is the son of encouragement. He is someone who sells his tract of land. He builds it, brings it to the apostles' feet. But, in contrast, here is Ananias and Sapphira. Here is this cautionary tale for us. And Luke stresses that they were in on their decision together, together with his wife, Sapphira. And later on in verse 2, with his wife's full knowledge, they sell a piece of property. They're following this pattern of conviction, acting on conviction, and bringing it to the apostles' feet. Just as others, others had done, they took the same action. Just as Barnabas had done, they took the same action. But there was something in their partnership. There was something that they both decided to do. The Bible singles out Barnabas as exemplary. Perhaps this was felt by Ananias and Sapphira. It is natural and normal to want to feel needed, 
and to want to be known. And I'm sure it must have felt amazing for Barnabas to be known as the son of encouragement, humble guy, someone who's encouraging others. And maybe for Ananias and Sapphira, maybe this was part of something that they wanted too, that they see this movement that's happening, they see this amazing community that's building, and they want to be a part of that. Son of encouragement, that sounds pretty good. You know, how can we get in on that too? How can we also find ourselves a place in this community as well? Perhaps it played a role in why they did this. Here's this pattern. Conviction. Taking care of each other's needs. We expect this should happen here, but the way it's presented, it already gives us a sense of tension. Would Ananias and Sapphira give generously? And instead, what we read in the text is they kept back. They kept back a portion. It's a neat little word, kept back. It's very specific. It was a verb used for financial fraud. And so here's this couple. They're convicted to do the the right thing, and yet there's something there that holds them back. And together they conspire to keep a portion. Financial fraud. Luke stresses here again, with his wife's full knowledge, they do this together, partnership. We, the readers, know what's fully going on, but we have to start thinking, what's Peter going to do about this? And but Peter, he responds in this way, in line with this duplicitous offering, is this another setup of a contrasting statement, of this contrasting sentence, in contrast to the actions of the faithful, to those who give fully, is the actions of this couple, and but Peter, he responds in a certain way. Peter is given this insight, and so he exposes it directly. He doesn't beat around the bush, and he asks four questions of Ananias that are pretty shocking. How is it that Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Spirit. For the early listeners of this narrative, for those who heard this story, and perhaps the story was shared widely and quickly, alarmingly, perhaps this was a lesson they needed to learn. Jesus preached that it also would have been shocking to read of someone lying to the Holy Spirit as if that was a possible thing. Lying to the third person of the Trinity God, the Spirit. And the only explanation could be that Satan was the one in control of their actions. And Peter is left with, how is it that this happened? You know, when I read it, I can read it easily as a voice of condemnation. How is it that Satan has filled your heart? But it's also good for us to read it with different voices as well maybe one of perplexity. Here is this community that has been formed and brought together by filling of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, we read about the Spirit coming down and filling this group of disciples so that they're preaching and saying and speaking in good news, all in languages that they've not known before. And we hear about all these people gathering together, filled by the Spirit, this Spirit-filled community. 
And Peter's left to wonder, how is it that this happened? How could you be filled, not by the Spirit, but by influence by Satan? Satan has to influence such a decision to lie. Satan filled, and the result was the lie. And this is in direct opposition to the community, again, being filled by the Spirit, growing together relationally, growing numerically. There is a spiritual element to life in the community alongside the human dimension. It's not just a great place to hang out and be together. It's got to be much more than that. But we are called together. There is this spiritual element where we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Nothing, like all the barriers are taken down in Christ. Jesus is the great equalizer. And yet here is Satan trying to undermine what the community represents. And such lying is dangerous to this community. It dishonors God. It is an act against fellowship. This community that has started off so strongly is in the danger of being tripped up and destroyed by the example of this couple. Peter follows that up with two questions of, look, it was all in your control. Wasn't the land in your control when you had it? Wasn't the money in your control after you sold it? The answer is in the affirmative, of course, the land was in their control. It was in their possession. And Peter is setting up, these are your deliberate actions that you took. Why did you purposefully do this? Why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart? Perplexity, tinged with sadness, I'm sure. Peter reveals what their actions truly reflect. Maybe they thought that they were deceiving just the apostles. Recognize us. Need us. Know that we're doing great things too. Perhaps you'd like to bestow upon us a nickname, power couple. No, their, their deception isn't just against Peter, the other apostles. But their deception is really against God. How is it that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. God, the Spirit. The consequence of this lie is really serious, way more serious than both Ananias and Sapphira probably realized, and it is instantaneous death. As soon as those words come out of Peter's mouth, and this is terrifying, we could admit it, after he heard these words, not after he heard these words, but as he heard these words, he died. And those who heard of it were right to fear fearful. We're not told whether it was by church members who actually heard of it or the response, but the response is appropriate. Fear and terror. Mirroring the first account, the the scene shifts to Sapphira, Luke speeds up the narrative. He skips over those three hours. We don't know what Sapphira was up to, but she doesn't know her husband has died, and she comes to their place of meeting, and she meets up with Peter. And Peter doesn't mince words, but he gets right to the question at hand as well. And again, there's tension here because as readers, we know what happened to her husband, and yet Sapphira has no clue 
But now Peter is giving her a chance to be honest, and it hooks us to see how is she going to respond. You know, I've read that some people feel that this is a trap. Peter set her up. I don't, I don't think so. I feel it's Peter giving Sapphira a chance to come clean. You know, he doesn't trap her by weaving a tale or a parable. For those of you who, fam- who are familiar, I thought of in my head, like Nathan setting up King David. Here's a lamb. You brought it up. Bam! You're the murderer, right? And just mic drop. No, he doesn't set it up that way. He just asks her directly. Come clean. And he says, tell me, did you sell it for such a price? Aren't you hoping, even though, I mean, I know that it's right there in black and white, but aren't you hoping that she says, actually, Peter, no, no, we didn't. Yeah, we sold it for that price. And Peter adds another layer. Not just lying to God, but you have agreed together. You're putting the Spirit to the test. Not only are you lying to the Spirit, you're also testing the Spirit. And he says, here's your consequence, that those same young men that buried your husband are at the door, and they will bury you as well. In this first count, great fear, fear gripped the people who heard of it. It must have spread like wildfire. And the consequence here, what happens here as a response is great fear sees the church. Great fear grips this community and those who hear of it. Maybe these questions go through their mind, what could happen to me? Maybe even what should happen to me? Who is this God? Times have changed, but human motivations are still the same. We do desire this recognition, and in some ways we desire glory. Today, the same ways they did in that time. Perhaps this is what tinged Ananias and Sapphira to act in this way. We can be honest here, this is harsh. When we read it, we might feel like, is this really just? Did they get what they really deserved? As, as members of the community, as people who follow Jesus, did they get what they deserved? And if that's the case, then I ask myself, how many times over have I done something that just deserves an absolute smiting? Isn't this too harsh? You know, it's helpful in Luke's first installment in his gospel. In Luke chapter 12, verse 10, Luke recorded Jesus' warning that speaking against him, Jesus Christ, that that would be forgiven, but if someone blasphemed the Holy Spirit, they would not be forgiven. This is a case here. Perhaps the greater vision that we see of God is God is the one who loves and protects his church. Here is true fellowship, true community right at the beginning, at its birth stages, growing like crazy. And here is true fellowship at the risk of being faked out. And perhaps people hearing about it, it sets a really negative precedent 
We can be fake with each other, and we can be fake with God, and we'll get away with it. No, God loves his church too much for that. In Acts, we see that the main emphasis is on the formation of the church. And God shows his extreme love and care for the church. And it also gives us pause to realize how serious sin is to God and how gracious is God is when he defers judgment. When we seek our own glory, it pits us against God's glory. So why did they die? You know, we are brought this scene and we, Luke makes the point that God's people are called to holiness and are accountable to God for it. We're called to holiness and God is warning us that we are accountable. The followers of Jesus were serious about God's mission in loving people into the kingdom and loving one another deeply. And what would happen if that got fractured? There is a saying that familiarity breeds contempt. And in our setting, in our day and age, I believe that can be a real part of what happens with us. God is gracious. He loves us, no strings attached. Yes. But do we take that for granted and treat our relationship with God as safe and easy? We've heard about God's grace, we've heard about his mercy, we've heard about his compassion, and so does that drive us to the point where we toy with the way that we live our lives, holding a portion back, saying that it's our full, but it really isn't? There is this message of encouragement, and it's how, where, but there is. And it's for Christians to know that God and the Holy Spirit, that they guarantee the church's integrity, that they want us to be a community that is so real and so accountable to one another. And here is this warning, that there is this mercy given to us, but at the cost of an example of these two people. God loves us enough to warn us, to lead us to a greater conviction that to follow Jesus takes our full heart, our whole heart. Perhaps we can ask ourselves, where in our lives are we following God in half measure but pretending that we are full out for God? Where have we compromised? We live under God's mercy daily, moment by moment, and God deals mercifully with us. We do not follow Jesus in half measures, but we count the cost and we follow after him fully. Not just for us individually, but looking at the fuller picture, we see that this narrative is about the importance of community and God's care. Where are our actions, our attitudes, where does it lead to the fracturing of community? Here at Knox. What things do we say in our heart or to other people that break up this community? Because we are well warned. 
We need to also think broadly about how our actions affect those around us because we are not islands, but we are interconnected. And the ways that we behave in community, are we building each other up or duplicitly are we tearing it down? And I spent some time just in the elevator, just going up as I was picking, as I was picking up the sermon after I printed it out and just thinking to myself, in what ways have I behaved here in attitude or in word to tear down the authority of those that, we, that God has called in session as our senior minister? In what ways have we thought of community first ahead of ourselves? And in what ways have we be, through word, through action, have we also hurt our community? God is gracious, yes. But have we taken that for granted? Do we treat our relationship with God as safe and easy? We may mistake, we may mistake God's mercy, grace, and compassion with weakness. We might not say it, but the way we act, we may treat him as weak. But as Mr. Beaver tells Susan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe about Aslan, that he isn't safe, but he's good. May we be drawn closer to one another. May we be drawn closer to the Father through Christ the Son and by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you this morning and we are in awe of you. Perhaps a little bit more fearful this morning too. Thank you that through Jesus Christ, grace is bestowed upon us. We have received what we do not deserve. You love us unconditionally. And yet, God, you love your church. You love the community of believers that you, pull, you call together. And may we be about that. May we be about building each other up. God, convict us in our hearts today. Help us to follow you fully. And where we are not, convict us. Thank you, God, that you are good. You are not a bully, but you are good. And we pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.